Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Let me let you into a technique of mine. Whenever I get a collection of poems by, by a single poet who I don't know, I will read through it, scribbling stuff on the poems, but I, I will go back to the title page and I write sort of my general thoughts, my big sweeping ideas about this poet. I'm making them sound grand, but they're, they're not things I normally share verbatim, although they might get sort of mingled into these podcasts a bit. However, today I thought I'd just read what I've written just straight from the page. Just this little bit at the front of a, of a book I was given called Shine, Darling, by a poet called Ella Frias, who I was unfamiliar with. And this is what I wrote as, my, as far as my general notes is concerned, on the front page of the book. Spiky, sweary, funny, tragic, unsettling, and yet joy-inducing, was the first thing I wrote. And then, she has an extra-mile sensibility, rushing past the obviously poetic and looking on the higher shelves. It's really, I mean... What a lovely turn of phrase I had on that day. Not afraid to celebrate art, but does it in a rug-pulling way. There are some poems about fine art and stuff in the collection. Now, here's a question. Can prose be poetry? Question mark. Yes, is my conclusion. And finally, the book is not just gathered separates. It has a distinctive and compelling voice. It's clever, kind and detached. Now, if I was writing this for publication, I don't think I'd end clever, kind and detached. It makes it sound uh, like a failing, the detached element. I don't think it is at all. I was sort of blown away by Shine Darling by Ella Frias. So I thought I'd share a couple of the poems with you. I've only just discovered this poet and this book myself, and so it's still fresh paint as far as I'm concerned. But let's just go for it. I want to start off with a poem called Midpoint, which was one of the ones that blew me even further away than, than, than many of the, the other poems in the book. Midpoint. I'm going to read you the first stanza. In fact, I think I'm just going to read you the first line initially because it's quite a beginning I'm an inconsolable piglet. Now, when you get an opening line like that, I'm an inconsolable piglet, that might put some people off, might have put me off. I don't know quite what it means, but also I don't want piglets early on in a poem. It sounds too cute and lovely. But there are three ways to respond with a challenging opening line. You can either walk away and try another poem. There's plenty more in, in the book. You can try and kick the door down on, on a first line, i.e. you can sort of squeeze your head to try and get the meaning out. Or I think this is the best method. Just keep going. You might not understand the first line, the first stanza of a poem, but you might find the key to the whole thing hidden under another lighter line in the poem. So keep going. Anyway, here's that first stanza. I'm an inconsolable piglet. 
rooting for lumps in the snow. Incrementally it falls, a blanket of hours, across the boarded-up restaurant. Now, I love, I have to say, the fact that the piglet is rooting for lumps in the snow, who knows what that means at this stage, but I feel like maybe lumps of meaning... Anyway, incrementally it falls, a blanket of hours across the boarded-up restaurant. That's beautiful, isn't it? That, to me, saying that the snow is as a blanket of hours. It's like you could measure time by the snow's inchage. Like counting the rings of a tree, the depth of the snow tells you how long it's been snowing. And also, in the first stand of the boarded-up restaurant, I think we all know, those of us who have have lived through 2020, that there is something intrinsically sad about a boarded-up restaurant. The breaking of bread, uh, humans enjoying the company of other humans, all all ceased. The sense in there of there being empty tables and upturned chairs and the lights off, that, that sadness... So then the the next, I'm just going to read you this poem because it's, oh man, I'm going to do a stanza and look, never mind what I'm going to do. Just stick around. Next stanza. Daylight has eased off, but the neon green strip along the edge of the petrol station has picked up the slack. I've never seen a collar try so hard. Now, that daylight has eased off. That suggests a speaker, doesn't it? Who really doesn't want to be operating in bright light. That says something about the mood of this. Oh, it's eased off. Thank goodness for that. Darkness is coming. And consequently, they're sort of resentful of the light on, on the petrol station. What a beautiful image that is, though. That light that has picked up the slack I've never seen a collar try so hard. You know, when you get a light, when it's starting, when you get into dusk and the lights start to really sparkle and, and, and stand out, there's a real melancholy about these, these first two stanzas. I'm going to read you the, the third. Thoughts like water take the root of least resistance. Mine course up and down the motorway. I shove a scotch egg into my mouth. Now, there's a lot there, isn't there? Thoughts like water take the root of least resistance. That's fabulous. You know where water, they always say it takes the root of, of least resistance. It'll just run anywhere that, that's easy for it. And her thoughts are like that. They're going where they will, if you like. I'm assuming that they go, as she said, they course up and down the motorway. I'm assuming they do that so that they can dwell on departure and destination, what they've come from and where they're going to. The poem is called Midpoint, remember. So it seems like someone who's making a significant journey, perhaps from one place to another. And and the use of motorway, they're coursing up and down the motorway, gives us a bit more help as well. The restaurant and the petrol station now make a bit more sense. We seem to be... I don't know, maybe stranded at a, at a services in, in the snow. I should say, by the way, that um, the lines on the page, they're not neatly stacked. They um, zigzag from one side of the page to the other. If I was really 
amongst friends now who I could trust, I'd probably say that they they swerve like a car in snow. But I think some of you would go away if I said that. So I'm going to say that they zigzag like her thoughts taking the route of least resistance. They are zigzagging from the past to the present, to this moment, from the place of departure to whatever her destination is. And the motorway services seem to be breaking this long journey. As I said, they seem to be at the midpoint that we're we're hearing about. The next three stanzas I'm just going to give you in, in a lump. And I think this is a thinking back to the life she is leaving, it seems. Looking backwards off the A30, there I am. Swimming under the fat lip of a cliff, refusing another lift from the maths teacher. Further on, I'm aimless on the harbour front, on the dunes, throwing punches in a novelty captain's hat, sharing a cigar with the boy my best friend likes. I mean, come on, this is, is if that is growing up by the seaside, if ever it was described, isn't he? And everything, at first when she said, uh, looking back, I'm on the A30, I panicked a bit because I thought, don't make this too specific, Ella, or you'll alienate me. It'll just be your story. It won't be our story anymore. But she gets away with that, I think, because the A30, well, every road, every road number for me has got a dark melancholy about it. I don't know why the B113... The M4, they've all, oh God, it just, they sound like a million human lives have experienced sadness and despair on their hard shoulders. If I'd have been a a more spontaneous uh, speaker, I would have come up with something about crying on their shoulders, etc. But it was beyond me. It's got a sort of a William Blake-like songs of innocence and experience about it. So looking backwards, it begins. There I am, swimming under the fat lip of a cliff, refusing another lift from the maths teacher. The swimming under the fat lip of a cliff sounds like a beautiful, idyllic childhood memory of swimming in the sea. But the choice of image of the fat lip of a cliff has a hint of sort of violence about it, that that a child would choose that as as a metaphor from its own experience it makes you a little unsettled obviously the maths teacher sounds like a uh, an ominous character offering this young girl a lift on a regular basis but what about this for growing up by the sea further on i'm aimless on the harbor front i mean i would like that on a on a t-shirt i'm aimless on the harbor front fantastic and the rhythm of it i'm aimless on the harbor front on the dunes, throwing punches in a novelty captain's hat. There's the, the, the violence and innocence juxtaposition again. Throwing punches in a novelty captain's hat and sharing a cigar with the boy my best friend likes. I don't think anyone, in, in my experience, I don't think anyone actually enjoys a cigar. And so they're only smoke for image reasons. In, in, in this context, I think I'm grown up. I can do this without being sick is, is the message. And also that with the, the, 
the boy that her friend likes, something about the cigar in the mouth, sharing it, the mixing of saliva. It all feels like a, a precursor to sort of more intimate things. So we've had that three stanzas of, of flashback. And now I think we're back. We're back at the services. And, and she says, in the toilets, I'm in the mirror sobbing over a row of sinks. The soap dispensers dribble silky puddles on the faux marble counter. The road ahead is dark. Snowy banks on either side. The ghosts of verges past. Leaning against a pump, I watch the red lights head onwards. I mean, it's very, it's very romantic image. I love late night motorway services at the best of times, but here she has really made the, the whole thing electric. In the toilets, crying and looking in the mirror, or she says, in the toilets, I'm in the mirror, sobbing over a row of sinks. That, to me, is that key I was looking for for the first line. That's why she's an inconsolable piggly. You know, when you cry to the point where your eyes get all small and puffy and over pink, I think she's looking in the mirror and seeing an inconsolable piglet, which I think makes me like the speaker even more because it's it's a sort of disparaging image. It's taking away the, the sort of romance and nobility of this person leaning against a petrol pump, watching the red lights head onwards. I also, I love, and this is a small thing, but it's the small things, of course, that, that make poems special. Silky puddles is such a brilliant description of those drips that you get from soap dispensers. And we've all seen them. And uh, it just makes me happy that that is so accurate. Sometimes in a poem, just accuracy is enough for me. Although there's plenty more here, of course. The road ahead is dark. I mean, that's just... Yeah, she can't She can't see what's coming. She can't read what's coming. It's scary. I think there's something tremendously romantic about leaning against a pump. I watch the red lights head onwards. I mean, that, to me, is like modern British poetry. Petrol stations, motorway services, red lights. That's where, that's where you find the real pain. OK, I'm going to continue. Now, we don't know who she's speaking to at this stage, but I think it becomes apparent. Would you mind, sir, hitting a pause on the CCTV, running it backwards so that I might watch the sky getting a taste of its own cold medicine? Would you mind, sir, hitting pause on the CCTV? Now, every garage forecourt has CCTV. And I think what she's doing here is asking that lonely guy that you always see in late night garages at services to run the CCTV backwards. And I might watch the sky getting a taste of its own cold medicine so that she can see the snow going back upwards into the sky so the sky knows what it's like to be snowed upon it's i tell you what i think i think this is where the recovery begins in this poem she allows herself at this point what i would call what is called a poetic conceit it's quite a clever idea that she doesn't back off from the sky getting its snow back on a reverse cctv 
It's flamboyant. It, it's an image that shows great self-confidence that she'll go for that. And it sort of says to me, you know what? You've still got it. You're leaving something behind, but it isn't your poetry. It isn't your specialness. It isn't your original thinking that's going with you. And it ends with one last stanza, which I think, oh, God, I, I love. There's a particular phrase in this I love. More than once I've slowed to take a long drink of someone else's collision. I mean, we've all done that on the motorway, haven't we? You've see, you see a crash and you just want to have a little bit of extra information for the anecdote later. More than once I've slowed to take a long drink of someone else's collision. Madam, filling up your dusty Peugeot. It's okay to stare. So this now seems to be another customer at the garage. Madam, filling up your dusty Peugeot. It's okay to stare. Come. Let me wipe my puffy eyes on your trouser leg. I think now that uh, the recovery is complete. She, yes, she's got her own collision to stare at, whatever has happened to her this night. And she looks piggy-eyed from crying. She's leaning on a petrol pump. It's snowing. But she sort of defiantly displays her sadness. She she trumpets her, her desolation. She's not closed and afraid now. She's not honest and open and okay with who she is. She can write a poem about it, so why not call that woman over from the Persia and just say, yeah, you're staring, guess what? This is my night and this is my life and I'm I'm good with it. I think it's a really beautiful poem. It ends for me like, I don't know if you ever watch any old Charlie Chaplin silent movies where he'd lose everything, everything would go wrong and he'd walk off bowed into the distance and the sort of aperture would close on him as he disappeared. And then just before he disappeared, you'd see him stop and sort of shrug a bit, realign himself and he'd get his bounce back and then he'd walk off with it with a jaunty walk. And that feels to me that the speaker in this poem, be Ella Frias or some construction that Ella Frias has, has come up with, the speaker is having that experience of, you know what, it's going to be okay. That moment when you're doing something, changing your life in some way, where the fear of the adventure morphs into the sort of excitement of the adventure. I feel that at the end of this poem, which makes me joyous. I said I was going to do two poems from this book. I haven't actually kept an eye on the time, but I'm going to do it anyway, if it's a bit longer than usual. Poetry and clocks, they don't work that well together. So once I start reading this stuff, I, I, I'm not looking at a, a timer. That just seems wrong. Listen, I've been doing homeschooling during the lockdown era. And my son was doing a lesson about pollination and pollinators and all the various forms of pollination. I thought it was just bees, I'll be straight with you, but there's all sorts of way it goes. And one of them is the burr, the thing, B-U-R-R, the thing that sort of sticks to animals. They are pods of seeds, but they're covered in spiky, clingy bits and they stick to animals and animals wander off with them and take them somewhere else. And that is how the, the, the seed is 
dispersed. That this next poem I'm going to read from Ella Frias from this same book, Shine Darling. That's what it did to me. It has stuck to me and with some discomfort and some spikiness. And now I'm going to disperse its seeds to you. Yes, sir. It's called The Film. And here is the first stanza. The sun was shining as we ambled around campus, stopping boys and men and asking them to hit me across the face. Now, it starts off so the sun was shining as we ambled around campus. And the whole thing, campus, to me, from the, my memories of, of my campus days, it, it sounds very safe and enclosed and almost womb-like. And the sun was shining, we, so she, she's not, the speaker is not on her own. It, it feels good. Stopping boys and men. As soon as the men are... When she's stopping boys, I'm okay. And then men is like the beginning of the stain in this first stanza, which to me completely blossoms in a dark way when she says, and asking them to hit me across the face. And it's got a real trajectory, this poem. It really moves you along. You want to know what's going to happen very quickly. The last two lines, I mean, they are shocking. Breaking the line on hit me, because what it says is, and asking them to hit me, new line, across the face. I think you're hoping that, that there might be some sort of ambiguity, some minor high jinx after hit me. But across the face, is, it just feels unsettling in the extreme. I look back to the title, The Film, for, for some sort of reassurance. Oh, it's, it's, it's just a film. We'll see. I'm carrying on. They all refused at first, but we explained it was art and necessary. So they slapped me, one after another. That that they all initially refused is, is quite a relief at first. And it's lovely that we explained it was art and necessary. It's, it's one of those very earnest student phrases. You can hear it being said. It, it was art and, and necessary. And it suggests they're in control at this point. But the, the slapping continues. It's still, it's still uncomfortable. So they slapped me. It's a line that you can't read without feeling some unease. And I want to know more about the we at this stage. Is, is, she, is there a gang of them? Are the boys there who could handle it if anything went bad? Is that sexist? I don't know. I just want her to have some security with her on this experiment. Okay, next stanza. I realised I had to harden my eyes, provoke. Each boy did a comedy slap, palm to face, apologised before and after. It was hot and bright. Again, she's pushing me and pulling me back here because I don't, the fact that she has to harden her eyes and provoke them, I don't like that. I, I, this is playing with fire. It's getting edgier. I like that each boy did a comedy slap, palm to face, apologise before and after. It's all nice, but it was hot 
and bright. At the beginning, the sun was shining, but it was hot and bright to me now sounds like an intensification of the experience. We flirted with a geographer whose slap was light, his fingers just brushing my cheek as though turning my face to the side to see my profile. We had about, and then the stanza ends there, so I'll come to that last bit in a mini. Again, we're softened up a bit here by the, the gentle geographer, I think. They flirt with him, they get more and more confident, and that makes me uneasy, that growing confidence. But as I say, it ends, we had about, and then the line continues into the next stanza. And this, as many of you will know, is an example of enjambment, E-N-J, A-M-B-M-E-N-T. And it's when a line, uh, a sentence continues onto the next line, into this, in this case, onto the next stanza. And the effect it has on this poem is to accelerate it because it moves you on to the next stanza. And all the remaining stanzas, there are another four or five, they all end with enjambment until the the final one. So So I'm going to read these in a block because it has its own pace, this poem. Remember, we left stanza four, we had about... We had about 20 guys on film. My friend's boyfriend turned up and we asked if he would do it. He kissed her and stood to face me. My friend pressed record and said, go. And I was laughing, had forgotten to settle my face. My left cheek slightly pink from a day of slapping. I was not ready for his backhand. Quick and strong, a strange noise as though he'd knocked the laugh right off me, a thicker pain than a sting, an immediate loss of breath. For a moment we were silent and I looked at my friend whose hand had flown to her cheek, the camera's red light still blinking and I knew we would never watch the film that I would feel sick and guilty as long as the bruise lasted, longer, having asked for what wasn't mine. Oh, it really, like I say, this poem has, has lived with me. These last stanzas, the poem, when I say the poem falls to pieces, I mean in a good way. It's, it's upsetting and unsettling and... I, you kind of don't want it to happen. Poems like these, they, they, they feel like a really important phone call on a bad line. So you have to do your best with the gaps and do some of the piecing together during and, and some after. So you need to try and, what is going on here? Why is it so upsetting? At the end of the poem, that last sentence, which, um, let me find it again. I would feel sick and guilty as long as the bruise lasted longer, having asked for what wasn't mine. It's a difficult line, I think. And it's what I would call, what I do call, a homework line, a line that you want to go away and think about. It's got, needs a bit of work, needs needs some attention. Anyway, I, I go before my horse to market. So it's all still bobbly and fun at the beginning of this of this section. She's laughing. I think the idea of having forgotten to settle her face is, is a comical idea, as is her having a, a pink cheek 
as as she puts it, from a day of slapping. It it's it's it sounds still a bit like clowning at this stage. And the choice of pink rather than having a red cheek, it keeps it and again I'm gonna slightly stereotype, but it keeps it girly day out rather than bloody and dark. The turn for me is I was not ready. It's just horrible. And and the backhand, the fact it was a backhand, you know, that lovely moment with the geographer when he seemed to be just looking at her face. A backhand is, is A, it's dismissive, a backhand. It's sort of thrown away. And it also includes suddenly knuckles and, and other bony alternatives to the palm. There's something horrible about it. I can't find any solace in the title of the poem now. It isn't just a film anymore. It's it's become something grim. And you know what? I, it would not have shocked me so much, that backhand, if the, the, the guy hadn't kissed his girlfriend first. It's that sort of sex and violence combination here. That sense of ownership of kissing his girlfriend and then turning to this other woman to hit her and and the camera person calling go makes her sort of doubly complicit she's introduced this backhand guy it's like he's broken their their friend thing it it, it, everything now has has collapsed i'm talking about this being brilliant Obviously, it's it's dark and horrible, but it's it's brilliantly dark and horrible. There's two great images to be to be brutal, if you'll forgive the pun. He knocked the laugh right off me. Now maybe it's because I'm a comedian by trade, but that is horrible. The way violence changes the tone, ping like that. The way that happens all the time, and it happens in this poem. All the sunshine references have gone now. The whole project is destroyed by this. It was based on a, on a, a pretense, this being here. It was about politeness and pretending. And now the boyfriend, he spoiled what was a sort of... It was a sort of student reel, if any students listening will forgive me. Rather than being real, it was sort of student reel, sort of enthusiastic and a bit naive. And this guy has changed it. And the second image of the brutality, a thicker pain than a sting. Wow, a thicker pain. Now the hit isn't about the pink cheek. It it isn't even about flesh now. It's about bone and brain and tongue. It's it's deeper and it's thicker. It's sort of violence from the bass clef now rather than the treble. And we don't get his, his response. We don't know. He disappears after he's... I don't mean he disappears physically, but he, we don't hear any more about the boyfriend. He's not relevant once he's actually dealt the blow. It seems to me to be about the two women. And I think the eighth stanza slightly rescues this terrible. It says, we were silent. There's no apology, no aftercare from the guys. He doesn't exist anymore. It's the, for me, it's the look exchange between these two women if it is even a look but the friend who had kissed the I'm going to call him the assailant now she'd kissed him she'd said go she seems to regain the unity with the speaker when it says her hand had flown to her cheek 
solidarity, I think, is is regained at that point. The friend reaching for her cheek makes them, it unifies them. It's suddenly they're two women responding together. And that's why we don't get his response. I think it doesn't matter about him anymore. He is the outsider now. I think the kiss made the speaker the outsider. But now the speaker and, and her friend who's on the camera, they seem to be rejoined. They're two friends again. Now, this last line, the homework line, the speaker feels guilty and sick. And because she says, having asked for what wasn't mine. Now, you, I think you should all have a think about what it means. That's the, the joy of lines like this. For me, I think she means there are women whose life is this, is about being hit. And she now feels bad when it's got real. She feels bad for, for, for playing at it. And I think that's why the bruise, she says the bruise in particular would make her feel guilty because it's a sort of false badge of pain that she'll be carrying, one that she asked for that, that, uh, that wasn't hers. And I don't think it's, we can also shrug off the idea that this is the, her friend's boyfriend and maybe, maybe this will happen to her. Maybe it's happening to her. The whole, that kiss now seems a darker, more controlling thing to me. It's upsetting, this poem. I can't shrug it off, but that doesn't mean it isn't brilliant, of course. I would recommend you very much to read Shine Darling, the collection by Ella Frias, published in 2020. There is much brilliance in it. I'm just going to read you one last bit to end. I'm picking up the book, and um, there's there's a, a, a chunk in it of bits all put together called Passivity, Electricity and Acclivity. And this is what I've written. My, as I say, I write notes on title pages. This is what I've written. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chuck it at you. Fabulous patchwork, callback-encrusted cross-wire of tragic encounters and spy stories and always the shadow of her near abduction when she was 10. There is so much... Life in Shine Darling by Ella Frias. I, I, I urge you to check it out. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. <laughs> Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. See you next week. Oh, and uh, P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. <laughs>